Today from the Global Lane, Biden approach to Israel, return to the chilly relationship of the Obama era. I don't think Biden wants to return to that state of affairs. Unconstitutional election actions. Texas takes its case to the Supreme Court. More uncertainty coming. This fight isn't going to be over um, until January 20th, if then. New COVID lockdown for California. Restrictions for thee, but not for me. Now it's time for us as Californians to stand up and fight against this hypocrisy. And a Hallmark Christmas movie ending for the Illinois boy that Santa brought to tears. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. If he is sworn in as president January 20th, Joe Biden will have plenty on his foreign policy plate, especially with the Middle East. Some Biden advisors say he will keep America's commitment to the Abraham Peace Accords. But Biden will likely shift U.S. policy toward the nuclear deal with Iran and peace talks with the Palestinians. Well, joining us to provide some insights is University of New Haven professor Howard Stouffer. Dr. Stouffer is associate professor of national security from the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences. He's a 25-year veteran of the U.S. State Department and former deputy director of the Counterterrorism Committee at the United Nations Security Council. So, Professor Stouffer, it's a pleasure to have you with us. So let's begin with the Abraham Accords. We've seen Bahrain, the UAE, now Sudan make a commitment. How committed is Joe Biden to these agreements and to bringing other Arab countries into the accords with Israel? Well, thank you for having me. And um, I can tell you that since 1979, when the Camp David Accords were signed and brought Egypt into the fold for the first time to establish relations with Israel, it's been the policy of every administration to try to help Israel establish relations with all 22 Arab states. And now uh, there's been a breakthrough, and this is a significant achievement that uh, Bahrain and uh, UAE, as well as Sudan now, are all uh, establishing relations with Israel and actually having very robust uh, economic ties through the UAE and Bahrain. And I am sure that the Biden administration will want to continue that and try to encourage other Arab states, particularly uh, Saudi Arabia, to reach out to uh, the, the Israelis and to try to find some kind of a working relationship with them. Now, Kamala Harris has already said that she would like to see U.S. policy uh, return to emphasizing the Palestinian issue. You've focused for years on terrorism and security in the Middle East. So, Howard, how likely is it that Israel would return to talking peace with a designated Palestinian terror group, Hamas, bent on destroying the Jewish state? Well, I, I seriously doubt that anybody would want to engage with Hamas unless they repudiate violence as the PLO did back in the 1970s uh, to be, and then in the, in the Oslo Accords of 1991. However, I do believe that uh, the Biden administration can reach out to the Palestinians because, uh, first of all, I don't think Bibi Netanyahu will be prime minister for that much longer. So uh, I believe we're going to see a big change in the Israeli political landscape Unless, of course, uh, uh, Netanyahu signs the budget accord, because that's the trigger for having new elections if there's no budget. But under a Biden administration, I think uh, reaching out to the Palestinians, which had been the old method, uh, might be coterminous with trying to reach out to other Arab states and encourage them to establish relations with Israel. So I think you can do both. What can Israel expect from a Biden administration? Uh, do you think it'll be returned to a chilly relationship uh, that we saw in the Obama era or something else? I think it'll be something else. I don't think Biden wants to return to that state of affairs. Um, it's much better if, um, if, if uh, and Biden will continue, by the way, supporting the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem, and he will um, also encourage 
the Israelis to try to restrain themselves in terms of building settlements. But I think it'll be different from Obama because, um, you know, the, the Palestinians just resumed uh, security talks with the Israelis, or security relationships with the Israelis. And that prompted Hannah Ashrawi, who was a member of the PLO board for at least 40 years, to resign, thinking that that's the wrong way to go. I think there's a new generation among the Palestinians and Israelis that really want to reach out to each other and find some kind of accommodation in a two-state solution. That will be the major change. A one-state solution changes Israel because it won't be a majority Jewish state anymore. Now, on to Iran. The country's a mess, particularly uh, because of economic, sanction, uh, economic sanctions. And now there's word that the Ayatollah is ill. He's named his son as a replacement. So what do you see Biden doing there? How likely is he to lift U.S. sanctions and return to the nuclear agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action? Well, I think he might want to tr at least see if it's possible to return to the nuclear agreement, um, if that's possible. Like restraining the Iranians for 25 years from developing a nuclear device is an absolutely critical issue, not just for Israel or the United States, but for the entire world. Because you now have nine nuclear states, and you don't want to see that number growing anymore. And this this coming year, in 2021, you'll have the Non-Proliferation Treaty five-year review. And if we see that Iran could be reined in somehow. Now, the cost can't be that uh, all of the sanctions would be lifted. The sanctions have to remain as long as the Iranians continue to fund uh, terror groups in, uh, you know, Hamas, for example, the Hezbollah in, uh, in, in the region, and uh, trying to continue to have an arc of instability from Iraq and Syria into Lebanon, and of course, in the Gaza Strip. If that can be, if that can be bridged, I think the U.S. would be willing to say, okay, you stop your nuclear program. We're not going to let you fund these these terror organizations. And let's see if we can build some kind of a relationship that would be um, less inimical to all of our interests. And finally, here in the U.S., an Axios investigation tells of a Chinese swallow, a female spy, a honeypot, named Fang Fang, who targeted California politicians and Midwestern mayors in an intelligence operation to gain political influence. Now, you've worked in security issues for years, so how concerning is that to us? It's very concerning. I think the Chinese and the Russians are constantly trying to, um, you know, undermine our security, to steal secrets. The Chinese have been trying to steal some of the vaccine secrets for months now, and I'm not surprised that they're trying to steal other, you know, technological uh, secrets that would be related to weapons development. We have to be vigilant. We shouldn't be you know, dreaming that those two dictatorial states are going to be any better now that Biden would become president than they were under Trump or any other president in the past for that matter. Okay, Dr. Howard Stouffer, Associate Professor of National Security, longtime veteran of American Global Affairs. Thank you for sharing your insights with us. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful. Time may be running out for Donald Trump's efforts to extend his presidency. Electoral College members are scheduled to cast their votes on December 14th. So what is likely to happen? Will Joe Biden officially be named president-elect? Well, joining us with more is the president of Judicial Watch, Tom Fitton. His latest book is A Republic Under Assault, the left's ongoing attack on American freedom. Tom, it's always good to talk to you. First, tell us about some new documents Judicial Watch has received about election security, specifically in Georgia, from 2016 during the Obama administration. Tell us what you found. Why is that important now in 2020? Well, the documents show that then-Secretary of State for Georgia, Brian Kemp, who is now governor, had complained 
that the Obama Department of Homeland Security had been snooping around the Secretary of State's website to trigger some warnings about uh, improper uh, scanning of the system. Now, the IG looked into the Obama DHS scanning of the Secretary of State websites, and it wasn't just Georgia, but other states as well, and found that it was innocent. But it's hard to take that seriously on his face when um, they hid the fact that documents detailing what went on were lost. And what do you think of the court challenges fought thus far by the president's legal team and others like Sidney Powell? Many people say there have been no big victories. They ask, where's the evidence? Well, you know, I think the courts are afraid to deal with the consequences of elections that were compromised in multiple states. And uh, it may ultimately be up to the Supreme Court to step in. Texas just filed a major lawsuit alleging that uh, voters in Texas and elsewhere are having their votes diluted by having votes illicitly counted under illegal laws in these other states. And, you know, that's fundamentally what's at issue here. Did these states uh, conduct their elections in a way that we can be confident of the outcome that we should, A, allow their electoral college slates to go uh, forward as if nothing happened? And I don't think that is the case. The courts may intervene. State legislatures may intervene. And in the end, Congress may reject electors as well. So uh, this fight isn't going to be over um, until January 20th, if then. And we still haven't seen signature audits, just recounts of ballots that uh, have already been counted. So what about that? Well, that's in Georgia, where uh, the signatures of those uh, using the vote-by-mail opportunity to vote were not validly uh, compared uh, to the original voter record, which is the allegation. And so until that's done, uh, uh, there's an issue as to uh, the provenance of those ballots and whether they can be treated as valid. Now, you know about the 1997 Foster versus Love case decided by the Supreme Court, apparently uh, on a vote of nine to nothing. The court ruled that federal law requires that elections be decided on a single day, by midnight election day. So what do you think of raising that argument before the Supreme Court this time around? Well, I've always highlighted that law. It's 3 U.S.C. Section 1. Your viewers can look it up. And it essentially says that we're supposed to pick the electors on election day. And never before, at least in modern American history, did we have one result on election day that was changed in multiple states by counting that continued after Election Day. And, and I'm talking about President Trump won these states on Election Day. And that outcome uh, was changed as a result of extraordinary and unprecedented counting after Election Day. And all the problems that have resulted from that have put us in the place we're in now. And federal law also requires that if they don't pick electors on Election Day, the states uh, the state legislatures can uh, step in and see and do what they need to do uh, uh, to pick uh, a slate of electors, which is what I think those who are concerned about the compromised elections are asking the state legislatures to do now. And Tom, I know you predicted this election mess. In chapter four of your book, you sounded the alarm about dirty voter rolls, mail-in balloting. 
You pointed out that in California alone, 58 counties have voter registration rates exceeding 100% of age-eligible citizens. Now, regardless of who is ultimately sworn in as president on January 20th, what do we need to do to protect the integrity of our elections? Uh, we need to clean up the election rolls to make sure if we're going to do mail-in balloting, uh, the ballots are being sent and received from lists that are somewhat clean. Uh, but we really need to get away from mail-in balloting because it is so unsecure. Uh, only, I think, two states have strong voter ID requirements tied to mail-in balloting. Everything else is just pinky promises, frankly. Uh, we need uh, citizenship verification. Uh, it's too easy for non-citizens to vote in our elections because no one checks to make sure that only citizens are registered, practically speaking. Uh, and uh, we also need to stop ballot harvesting, which allows uh, strangers to go around collecting ballots and presumably doing whatever they want with them uh, without much check. Uh, so those are the various issues that we need to approach to, to deal with to preserve and protect future elections. But in the meantime, all those issues, I think, should be litigated or brought before state legislators before they start messing with our uh, the election results from 2020. Finally, Tom, we can't let you go without asking about Attorney General Barr's decision to appoint John Durham as a special counsel, extending the investigation of the Russia probe and crossfire hurricane. Your thoughts on that? Because a lot of people wanted to see some big name indictments. Those haven't come. Do we need an outside independent prosecutor to, to investigate the Justice Department? Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the uh, key issues is that you've had the Justice Department investigating itself. The FBI is part of the Justice Department as well. Uh, the president, in my view, should point, uh, appoint uh, an outside special prosecutor to look at all of these issues. Uh, I was disappointed the attorney general made this appointment uh, in secret prior to the election. It's amazing how all these decisions by the Justice Department all tend to inure to the benefit of the opponents of President Trump, while those wanting the rule of law promoted uh, can't seem to get much in the way of justice from the Justice Department. And uh, Durham's been uh, a big fail in my in my estimation. Uh, there have been no serious prosecutions of uh, high-level people, let alone investigations. And my concern is uh, they've stayed away from people like Obama, Biden, Hillary Clinton, and have ignored wrongdoing by senior officials in the Obama administration and the deep state. And I'm not seeing any evidence they're going to do much of different, even if Durham's a special counsel. I think the special counsel appointment guarantees we get a report, not prosecutions. Okay, your book is A Republic Under Assault, The Left's Ongoing Attack on American Freedom. Tom Fitton, president of Judicial Watch, we appreciate you. Thank you again for joining us with your time and insights. You're welcome. Our Governor Gavin Newsom and Mayor Eric Garcetti playing the role of the Grinch this Christmas. Many Californians say a new round of coronavirus lockdowns are harming holiday business in the Golden State. Among those affected, Los Angeles restaurant owner Angela Marsden. She was forced to shut down her outdoor dining area due to the latest restrictions by Mayor Garcetti, even though a movie company was allowed to set up an outside eating area nearby. You may have seen her plea for help in this viral video. This is dangerous. Mayor Garcetti and Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person that doesn't have unemployment, that does not have a job, 
and all the businesses that are going under. And we need your help. We need somebody to do something about this. Well, here to set us straight is Joe Collins. Mr. Collins is a congressional candidate in Los Angeles County. Joe, good to see you again. So how are small business owners and others in your neighborhood uh, reacting to the governor's latest restrictions? You know what? I think the reaction is the same across the board. Everybody is sick of the lockdown. They're sick of the restrictions, um, especially with no evidence uh, provided that these lockdowns and restrictions, especially the outdoor dining, is going to slow the spread of the coronavirus. It all seems farce to us. Uh, we tried this in the beginning of the year. It didn't work. And now they're going back to the same thing that didn't work again. And thank God our sheriff's department is not going to enforce the orders. They are unconstitutional. And, um, you know, everyone is mad. Everyone's upset. I understand the sheriff of Riverside County says he won't enforce the new restrictions. And just south of San Francisco, San Mateo County, uh, says it will defy the governor's orders. So how extensive, though, Joe, is growing resistance to Newsom's lockdown? Well, we've been protesting um, on every city in, uh, in California, trying to get the governor to uh, reopen our state. I think the next step is to, they have to recall Gavin Newsom, but we need to create articles of impeachment to remove him from governorship uh, altogether. I think he's a terrible governor. He has destroyed the California economy. He has destroyed the lives of many, many families. Uh, but when you're Nancy Pelosi's nephew, I think that, you know, you, you can get away with whatever you want to, but it's up to the people to be able to stand up and fight. Well, mentioning Nancy Pelosi, a maskless Nancy Pelosi visited a closed hair salon, and then Governor Newsom dined out without wearing a mask, without practicing social distancing. And I guess the message is restrictive orders are for thee, not for me. So how is their hypocrisy affecting the lockdown response? Well, this has been going on for a very long time. We have a lot of uh, Democrats who, who display the same type of hypocrisies. And it's appalling, and a lot of people are getting upset about it. I mean, the the COVID the COVID shutdown. You know, people are losing their jobs. Maxine is paying her daughter two hundred and forty thousand dollars instead of hiring people from the community who could actually use that money. Gavin Newsom buying new houses, putting his kids in private schools. Nancy Pelosi forcing uh, salons to open so she can get her hair done. I mean, we've been facing this for a very long time. But now it's time for us as Californians to stand up and fight against this hypocrisy. Uh, the people are what is what matters the most. The government was created to uh, protect the rights of the people. Right now, that is not happening. So what what is happening to those who defy these shutdown orders? Are they being arrested, well, fined? I think that they're trying to arrest people what they want to, but the sheriffs are not uh, going for it. And, you know, they, they've cleared a whole lot of room. They released uh, 18,000 violent prisoners from jail to make room for people who defy coronavirus orders. So there, there's plenty of room in, in prisons for, for this type of stuff. And uh, I think that's the, the mantra that we're going on in, uh, in California. And, Joe, what are you seeing with churches? The U.S. Supreme Court ruled they cannot be treated differently from everyone else. Freedom of worship cannot be stopped if they practice safety guidelines. So are churches there open or are some still closed? What's going on with that? Well, here in urban Los Angeles, churches are still closed. They agree with everything that their Democratic oppressors tell them to believe. But in uh, more affluent cities, churches are opening back up. A lot of churches has been open uh, through coronavirus. We understand that people's faith and religion is absolutely important to them. And that's a right that is protected by the Constitution. Okay, from Los Angeles County, California, Joe Collins, thank you for setting us straight today, Joe. Thank you. I appreciate you having me.
The mindset of the anti-gun lobby is alive and well, especially during the holiday season. This Christmas video is going viral. It's of a young boy named Michael who visited Santa at the mall in Norwich, Illinois. When the boy told Santa he wanted a Nerf gun for Christmas, the politically correct Santa made the boy cry. No, no guns. Nerf guns. No, not even a Nerf gun. It's not okay. Santa should make kids happy, not bring them to tears. Folks, is nothing sacred anymore, even for secular Christmas? A politically correct Saint Nick? Maybe that mall Santa feared the boy would grow up to be a card-carrying member of the NRA. Can't have that now, can we, Santa? But really, a Nerf gun? It's not like the boy asked Santa to bring him an AR-15 rifle. Folks, you better beware of Nerf guns this Christmas. They're killing kids everywhere. Well, seriously, like NFL players who take a knee during the national anthem, just do your job, Santa. Don't share your politically correct opinions with a little kid who is too young to understand why you don't think he should have a Nerf gun. That mall Santa should have simply responded, what else would you like? By the way, that mall Santa resigned, and the mall apologized to Michael and his mom. This story does have a happy Hallmark Christmas movie ending. The mall sent a different Santa to Michael's house and gifted him with a Nerf gun. It's just a Nerf gun. Wow, you say Mike. This is crazy, this thing. Yes, it's crazy and wonderful, but folks, I hope Sabella DiCarlo shares the true meaning of Christmas with her son Michael. Christmas is about the birth of Jesus, the politically incorrect Savior of the world. We celebrate Him and the salvation He offers. That's the greatest gift. And just as Michael did when Santa came to visit, all we have to do is open the door and accept the gift. And unlike that Nerf gun, the gift Christ offers us lasts forever. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.